Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 167. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I'm not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Got to enjoy NHL All-Star break. I'm, I'm just kidding. None of us give a fuck. <laughs> it's very hard to care. They don't care. They seem like they're having a good time. I actually, you know what? I saw some of the skills competition and it was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Trevor Zegras is going to be a star. That's uh, not a newsflash, but he will. So good for him. Yeah, I, I wonder. He he might have the. Um, he might be an NHL player who could possibly like break into the public consciousness slightly more than mm-hmm. the average NHL star because he appears to have foregone the typical lobotomy that hockey players have <laughs> generally had. Uh, you know, generally have experienced by the time they reach the elite level. Yeah, I, I mean. The thing about hockey, and obviously I'm a little biased because I don't know if you've heard I'm a hockey fan, but we have a sport where there are lots of people doing lots of really cool stuff on a regular basis, and that there's just like a seeming contentment with the NHL to say, well, it'll sell itself, and we have fans already, and whatever. You know, I'm not saying they don't do anything. I'm just saying that there's a remarkable lack of ability to market um, NHL stars, you know, people are saying there are states in the U.S. where the best-known hockey player is still Wayne Gretzky, who retired over two decades ago. And, you know, he was the best, but still, you'd like to break through a little bit more. Yeah, so we did um, forward grades last week with, with Katya. Uh, today we figured, mm-hmm. let's do defenseman grades. Um, obviously, the Leafs haven't really played since last week, so all the data and information is still basically the same. So we're going to talk about the Leafs defensemen. And then we'll also throw in uh, goaltender grades and coaching grades as well. Those will obviously be quite a bit shorter because uh, there's less to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but without any further ado, we can uh, probably get started. And we'll go essentially in order of playing time, more or less, or kind of like importance, you can say, um, similar to what we did uh, last week. So we should start with the Leafs' most played defenseman, Mr. Morgan Riley. Yes, Mr. Morgan Riley. Um, you've kindly laid out his stats uh, this year, so I feel a bit weird saying them on your behalf. But uh, he plays 42 games, five goals. Um, he has 18, uh, assi- sorry, 18 primary 18 assists. 18 primary assists. 15 secondary assists. Um, it's really impressive. His point rate at 5v5 is second in the NHL for defensemen, behind Adam Fox, who is pretty good, you may have heard. He's uh, a very active shooter, um, not one of the top defensemen gunners. He does put shots on net, but he's not obsessive about it. Like, oh, I don't know, Tyson Berry. Um, I don't even know if that's still fair, but I... No, it, it, it is actually. Um, Berry does rank higher than Riley in, in uh, shot rate this year. But I, I think like the most... To, to be fair to like this genre of shot-happy defenseman, it also includes some, someone like Dougie Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dougie Hamilton is someone that I think we all agree is very good, as opposed to Tyson Berry, who is someone we all agree exists. So, on ice, Morgan Riley has put up a sterling 60.7 goals for percentage. That's real nice. Uh, Just short of 54% in expected goals and 54.8 in Corsi. He's running hot, as those stats put together would imply, in terms of on-ice shooting and save percentage. Riley, Brody together, you have them down as 59, 55, 55. And yeah, that's, that's goals for XG and Corsi. 
Yeah, and uh, you diagnosed the most obvious reason for why their stats look so good in that respect. Yes, um, they play a lot with Austin Matthews. Yeah. Right, helps. so we covered last week. Yeah, we covered last week that Matthews has had, you know, truly excellent season with very few warts. Um, Riley and Brody, by extension, um, play a lot with Austin Matthews, and that gives them a, a leg up in their stats. And for that reason, um, despite these really impressive on-ice numbers from Riley, the metrics which attempt to isolate for his impact on those metrics, such as RAPM, view him essentially as like around league average this year. Mm -hmm. um, it's slightly positive in terms of impacting shot differentials, slightly negative in impacting XG differentials, way positive in impacting goals, but that is um, largely attributable to, to goaltender luck. To shooting luck, really, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, if you're first pair, and I mean, we're talking about Riley specifically here, but a lot of what we say is going to be similar for Brody because they spend, you know, the vast, vast majority of their time together. Um, if your top pair is putting up 55% Corsis and XGs, you're generally pretty happy with that. Absolutely. And I think that there's an interesting question here about how much credit you can give to defensemen. Uh, I think that a lot of us believe, or at least I do, that forwards tend to impact the game somewhat more. But there's also the uh, related issue that because we have shot-based metrics, sometimes forwards are just going to show up more in that respect in terms of their shooting luck. Um, you know, you'll still see what defensemen are on the ice for, but the forwards are often taking the majority of the shots. Um, we talk about Morgan Riley pay, playing a lot of his time with Austin Matthews. That's a huge advantage. That said, pretty much all of the best defensemen that you can name in the NHL play a lot of time with very good forwards. Right, and we, we actually we covered this explicitly when we talked about uh, Tampa a few pods ago, and we said they love that power, um, that power on power combination of stacking Hedman's pairing with Kucherov and Point. Exactly, and Charlie McAvoy plays a ton of his time uh, on the ice with Patrice Bergeron. Kiel McCarr, uh, it's a little less lopsided in his case, but his most frequent uh, forward line mates are Ranton and Landis Cog McKinnon. Um, Adam Fox plays a lot with Artemi Panarin. You know, if, if you want to go down, who is the best defenseman who probably does not play a lot of time with a great forward? Roman Yossi comes to mind. But really, a lot of these guys are in symbiotic relationships with very good forwards. And Morgan Riley, I think, is in one too. But I yeah. think... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, one thing I just want to make clear. Um, when we say they play a lot with a certain forward, we're also... We're saying what we really mean is they play more than you would naively expect them to, accounting for the fact that good, that like, you know, these top players just play more generally. Mm -hmm. So it's like a disproportionate amount of time, even accounting for the fact that Matthews plays a lot of minutes generally, is Matthews Riley. Yes. Right, and so I wanted to make that clear because that, that's not always obvious. Yeah, that's something that we want to keep explicit. And uh, Morgan Riley has played a lot this year. In general, he's played a lot of minutes. Um, there's also been a Hasn't change. missed any games this year either. Yes, um, which is remarkable. You know, he's, he's got that extension. Um, he leads the team in time on ice by a huge margin. And he has a, a considerable margin over Brody. Um, power play time is obviously the bulk of that. But still, like, it, it's kind of staggering. Um, 
And if you look at even strength time on ice per game, uh, Riley is still well ahead of everybody. He, you know, he's playing a half a minute more a night than Brody and uh, almost a full minute more than Jake Muzzin. So he's being relied on quite a lot as the de facto number one defenseman. And, you know, we've talked so many times about is Morgan Riley a true number one defenseman? And I think you can argue that either way. You can say he's in this situation, he's getting excellent results. Sure, maybe they're uh, mostly attributable to the forwards he gets to play with, but who cares? That's what he's for. He's there to play with and facilitate great forwards. And so if he gets on the ice and that happens, mission accomplished. Um, I think that you could quite reasonably give uh, Morgan Riley really high grades here and just say, hey, I don't care. Um, if he's playing a lot with Austin Matthews, someone on this team should do that and should do it as well as Riley's doing it. So, yeah. Um, he's never been that great defensively. I think that's established. But, you know, he's, he's passable and he's a great offensive defenseman. Yes. And, I mean, even this year, the Leafs are a little worse with him uh, on the ice defensively than offensively. Mm-hmm. And yet again, that's despite... That those strong results with Matthews, and recall from from last week, Matthews's results are better than the team average, both offensively and defensively, in terms of shots and xG and, and things like that. Um, but I mean, look, we know we know who Morgan Riley is. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his use on the power play, I think, has been good. There was there was this period last year where everyone seemed to think that the Leafs really needed uh, someone with a better shot on the power play in place of Morgan Riley. And I think this year has shown, at least to some extent, that's not really the case. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that, confirm, that conforms to our biases because we, we never particularly cared for defensemen with big shots on power plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, it's like, I don't know, I, I view it as like a pitcher with a great pickoff move. It's nice to have, but I'm not really making roster decisions based on that. Yeah. Um, so, like- yeah, the power play has been very good this year. Riley deserves some credit for that. Uh, his his mobility, I, it's probably not quite what it was at when he was like a little bit younger, but still very very good in that regard. Um, his role on the power play is more static than almost every other forward, mm-hmm. almost every other player on the power play who, who are forwards. Uh, but I, I do think that the the Leafs' offensive system, both in its strengths and in the weaknesses, it can sometimes induced, especially in transition, it it is most encompassed by and most exemplified by Morgan Riley as a player. Mm -hmm. Because he takes advantage of that roaming to just a really, really impressive degree. He has such great instincts for that, and he's truly a a defenseman who, in my opinion, adds to the offense in a way that is not just cannibalization of shots that would have occurred anyway. Right. And I think that his very strong offensive instincts work especially well in Sheldon Keefe's system, which sometimes rewards defensemen who can pinch and push up and keep the cycle going through aggressive play. Well, Morgan Riley loves that. Mm-hmm. He's, he's almost tailor-made for it. I did want to make one point about uh, power plays and big shots um, just before we leave that topic. The Leafs have had one power play goal from a defenseman this year. Riley has one. And the Leafs have the best uh, power play, at least 5v4, in terms of goals rate, and second best in expected goals rate. Like, it's working really, really well, and almost none of it is defense shooting um, that I can see. So, 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about Morgan Riley, and I think some people have felt we didn't give him enough credit in the past. And I do think, you know, there's a tier of number one defensemen in this league, you know, maybe five to ten guys, who I think are a cut above Morgan Riley. And, you know, there's a longer list where it's arguable. You could say, oh, I have this guy a little higher, I have this guy a little lower. But I think Morgan Riley has performed like a top defenseman, and I think his pairing with Brody has worked like a good top pair on a contender. So, yeah, um, I gave him an A. Yeah, I gave him uh, an A-. minus. Yeah. <laughs> so, pretty much in agreement there. Yeah. I'm just always going to be a little easier on marking <laughs> most of the time. But um, The other th- last thing I want to mention before we move on to Brody, um, and we can actually use this to segue into Brody's, like Riley's usage and Brody's usage kind of by extension, a- as you covered, first pair at five on five. Um, Riley himself has like slightly more offensive zone usage than, than Brody, for example. Um, or then, then sorry, then like Muzzin and, and, and Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, he's used in offensively important situations. So you expect to see more of him when the Leafs are trailing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of competition, we'll, we'll touch on this a, kind of a fair bit through the first half of this pod. But basically, all of the Leafs' top four defensemen play kind of similar-ish competition, as far as we can tell. Uh, and this actually represents a bit of a change from last year where Muzzin and Hall tended to play slightly tougher competition and that Muzzin in particular was trusted um, disproportionately to handle defensively important minutes. And that, that's changed a bit. And that we'll talk about that as it relates to, to Muzzin very soon. But the knock-on effect is Riley's probably facing slightly harder competition than he did last year. But it's, it's kind of standard competition for um, a top four defenseman. And of course, Riley's quality of teammate is, as we covered, very, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like TJ Brody. I got to tell you, just going into yes. this segment, I'm very fond of him. I like that signing. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'm, again, we talked about this last week with, um, Kyle Dubas, where if, if, you know, he had to argue for his job, he would point to signings like Andre Kasha and Michael Bunting, and he would probably point most of all to acquisitions like TJ Brody as like, you know, for so long, the Leafs have been crying out for defensive, uh, replacements and defensive stalwarts. And he got one at a very good rate who has been everything the Leafs have asked for and more over the past one and a half seasons. Yeah, on this podcast, because we're always looking with an eye to will this team win a cup or contend for a cup, we focus on what needs to be fixed. And for a time, we were always saying, who's going to be the partner for Morgan Riley? And TJ Brody has answered that question authoritatively. Um, So 42 games played. He has three goals this year, which is... (laughs) For TJ Brody, that's like a an elite goal-scoring year in the making. Uh, he has a couple of primary assists and six secondary assists. He does not shoot a lot. Very shot-averse relative to Morgan Riley. Um, yeah. There's an obvious contrast in styles here. He is the more defensive defender. Morgan Riley is the more aggressive offensive defender. Um, right now, the puck is going in for him a little bit, hence the three goals, but that's not what he's for. And he, he went long stretches without scoring at all with the Leafs, and no one cared. Yes. And, I mean, the it, he is kind of the defensive conscious, conscience rather mm-hmm. of, of that pairing. And that, that is why we, we, we tend to see his acumen on two-on-ones <laughs> perhaps more often than we would like. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is just the way the Leafs play, right? They are vulnerable in transition, but having someone like 
Brody probably makes those transition opportunities against slightly more palatable than if you have Damon Severson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to mention that. Uh, TJ Brody, I have to say, you know, I don't know how much of this was anticipated by the Leafs, but I, I think it's fair to expect that this was, is one of the best rush defenders I've ever seen. For an odd man rush against, there are very few defensemen that I would prefer to have than TJ Brody. Um, he, you know, he's very good at seeming to open a passing lane and then seeming to close the passing lane just at the right moment. I, sh I shouldn't say seeming to. I mean, he, he gives it up and then he takes it away. And so a lot of very dangerous rushes and thanks to him. And it's a very discreet skill, but it's a very useful one, especially with Morgan Riley. And we've seen it from Brody since day one. Um, I've really enjoyed the fit there. Um, so on ice, he's just short of 57% of the goals, 54% of the expected goals, and 54% of the Corsi. So, so as you'd expect, the numbers are quite similar to Riley. Mm -hmm. um, the goal difference is really, I think, essentially entirely attributable to the period where Riley played with uh, Dermott and Muzzin played with Brody. And um, I think that that's, that's, basically, that's basically it. Um, funnily enough, both Riley Dermott and Brody Muzzin got kind of killed in goals. Mm. Um, but, and Riley Dermott did badly in shots as well, but they did better in goals than Brody Muzzin, who did fine in shots but got murdered in goals. So that's just hockey for you. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, RPM uh, is slightly positive in pretty much everything. Yep. So views him as like an above average defender, which which seems which seems about fair. Mm -hmm. um, and then his usage, obviously, you know, as we said, first pair plays a lot on the PK, plays with the stars slightly less than Riley, as you would expect, because we like to load Riley up in the offensive zone with the stars in, uh, on some occasions, and often that can be Riley Dermott or Riley Sandin at times. Um, and Brody is probably the guy that Sheldon Keefe trusts the most now in defensively important minutes, mm -hmm. right? Um, that was Jake Muzzin. Brody has usurped that role slightly. It's not, it's not like, I don't want to overstate, you know, I don't want to overstate that, but uh, Brody and Hall have effectively become like a, a de facto defensive pairing mm -hmm. uh, in like late and close situations. Yeah, and so I think all in all, Brody and Riley are together as much as they are because they work quite well. There's a real um, synergy, to use a corporate buzzword, of skill sets there. And as a result, I, you know, I think we'll, we'll see this going forward. At some point, Brody and then Riley are going to get old. But until they do, I'm content to run this pairing. Um, yeah, so, so no real complaints there. Again, I gave him an A. I'm real happy with these two. Yeah, I gave, um, I gave him an A minus again. So basically just the same gear as I gave, as I gave Riley. Um, he's been very good. Mm -hmm. Can't really complain about it. Uh, I think your point about how for so long we, we focus on kind of, by nature, we, we focus a bit on what can the Leafs do better. And it probably says a lot of positive things that we have talked about Riley and Brody and the Leafs top pairing so much less these last couple of years than we did in the three years prior to that. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember in the early days of this podcast, every two episodes was we got to find a partner for Morgan Riley, and is Ron okay. Hainsey good enough? And sometimes he's okay, but sometimes he's bad, and he's also 100. So yeah, there was a lot of up and down there, whereas now it's, it's just spoken for. 
Um, the questions come for the second pairing, and I think we're ready to move on if you are. Yes. Jake so, Muzzin. Um, yeah, Jake Muzzin. This is, I guess we've been lampshading some discussions about him uh, when we talked about Riley and Brody. So stats first, 35 games played, missed a bit of time recently due to injury, but um, doesn't appear to be something that's going to keep him out incredibly long-term. One goal, five primary assists, five secondary assists. Um, Muzzin has, also, has always quietly had pretty solid point production. Mm-hmm. And he's like basically always been like, he's not known as an offensive guy, but he, his point rates are essentially always quite respectable for a second pairing guy. Um, he's probably slightly more shot happy than people realize which isn't to say he's incredibly shot happy in general, um, but you know n- none of the least defensemen are incredibly shot happy. This does not feel like an accident, mm-hmm. whether it's by coaching or by uh, acquisition. I don't remember if Muzzin was more uh, more willing to shoot in LA because I do remember that being a very point shot focused team. But since he's come to the Leafs, he's been like slightly more um, you know willing to take shots than the average Leafs defenseman, but not a gunner by any stretch of the imagination. His on-ice stats, um, 53% XG, 51.5% Corsi, 47.6% goals for. And this is basically driven by the fact that he cannot buy a save when, when, he's in, when he's on the ice. And this has been true in his minutes with Brody, and it's been true in his minutes with Hall as well. Uh, they did try uh, Brody and Muzzin together. And this was like kind of when they were very, when Keith was like kind of very obviously trying to just get Jake Muzzin going. Mm-hmm. And it worked okay, or at least it seemed to work okay in terms of ge- generating shots, but they just got caved in by goaltending mm-hmm. um, and very quickly reverted to, to, to the standard. Uh, probably didn't help that, as we previously discussed, Riley and Dermott also did not do well. So it you know, became very, very easy for Keith to go to the one working pair as opposed to zero working pairs. Um, type of, type of uh, you know, line setup. He's also played a bit with uh, Timothy Lilligren, and this pairing has had great goals results because of a pretty crazy PDO run, and solid Corsi results, but really bad XG, and in particular, um, driven by bad offense, which is particularly problematic because it's not as if this line is playing a lot with David Kampf. It's most common line mates are actually the Taveras and Matthews lines. Mm. So the Leafs have kind of, both through injury and through their own experimentation, tried to find a place for Muzzin to succeed this year. And his numbers aren't bad, with the exception of the goals for percentage. But he has looked to the eye test significantly worse than his prior years, and it's worth remembering that his prior years were really, really strong. Jake Muzzin had an argument to be the best Leafs defender, um, basically since he's been on the team. Mm-hmm. If you will allow me for a second here, I'm going to put on my contrarian hat. Um, mm-hmm. We've kind of shown our hand with regard to Jake Muzzin because we've expressed worry about him on previous podcasts. But let's say I was a critical listener and... I was tired of this nonsense, and I would say, you guys are biting on a PDO slump. He has good XG. He's still playing hard minutes with a variety of partners. Yes, not as hard as before, but he's being relied on. Uh, Sheldon Keefe might have lost a little bit of faith in him because the pucks were going in at the other end, but again, that looks a lot like bad goaltending so far as we can measure it. You think you see plays that he's responsible for, and sure, there are probably a couple, 
But you also think you see a defenseman who has been exceptional defensively for a very long time falling off a cliff. You two are pessimists, and if you were analyzing this pairing as a threat, the way that we did for Florida, Tampa, Boston a couple weeks back, you would not be talking in these lights. You would say Jake Muzzin has been a good defender for too long for us to buy half a season of only goals really going against him to be this pessimistic about it. I'm worried about him in the playoffs, and I bet our forwards will see a lot of him. That is the kind of thing you might say to make a case in defense of Jake Muzzin. I, and I think, yeah. yeah, I think there's there's merit to it, but go, go ahead, fin- finish that thought. So the thing that I'm struggling with, and that I think we all struggle with, is when do you earn a bad goals against above your XG or below your XG? When are the chances that you're giving up so glaring that they're clearly worse than XG is crediting? I am doing a segue here. You see... When the Leafs were playing the New Jersey Devils in the first of the two games, there was a two-on-one. And Alex Kerfoot was coming up the ice. This was shorthanded with Ilya Mikheyev. And Damon Severson was tasked with defending these two. And the way that Alex Kerfoot played it was, I have to say, pretty shrewd. He kept showing pass, and then showing shot a little bit, and then showing pass. And Ilya Mikheyev opened up a little bit to try and provide that shot option. In other words, to make it seem like Kerfoot was going to pass to him and he was going to shoot high. Um, Damon Severson played this two-on-one about as badly as I've ever seen anyone play anything at the NHL level. He sort of pivoted backwards as if he expected a pass to come across the top of the circles. And Ilya Mikheyev said, thank you. And instead of stopping there, skated to the net. Alex Kerfoot said, thank you as well and passed it to Mikheyev, who tapped it in. Now, Money Puck had that shot as about a 16% chance to go in the net. I am extremely confident that in real-life terms, that shot had a way better chance than 16% of going in the net. Um, That's not a fault with Money Puck. That's them working with the data they have. And on average, shots from there, I'm sure, have that probability. But because Severson played it so poorly, because he made the pass not only possible, but positively obvious, like anyone with eyes in their head could see that coming, Um, he really made that chance against more dangerous. Thankfully, Jake Muzzin has done nothing as bad as that 2-on-1 against this year. That play is actually burned into my brain because it was so glaring. But Muzzin has made some giveaways with the puck that were pretty gruesome. And giveaways with the puck have a way of turning into bad chances against. You... Uh, actually have a popular quote that you borrowed from soccer in terms of uh, what is it? The best offense in the world is a giveaway. By a the best playmaker in the world is like an offensive zone turnover. Exactly. And it's, it's that sort of thing, right? Is Jake Muzzin giving away the puck uh, in those situations can lead to very dangerous chances against that may even be more glaring than expected goals. And you might also say, look, Jake Muzzin has never been that great a puck moving defenseman. Right. You know? He's been fine about it. He's great defensively at his peak. But you could say, in that context, maybe some of that goals uh, percentage is a bit earned in terms of poor choices that he's making. And I do feel like I've seen him making more mistakes than previously. He's not as bad as his goals looked earlier in the year when he was way underwater. Some of that was just PDO because it was just at an extreme level. 
Um, there was a brief stretch where I remember looking, and I think this was quite early, but Muzzin Hall had like a 25% goals percentage or something like that. It, like very briefly, like that was unsustainably bad. And mm-hmm. so I don't want to get anchored to a number that obviously was never going to last in any event. But I, I do still find myself wondering if there's a decline there. And so Sheldon Keefe may be reacting to goals. And I think coaches always do react to goals because their jobs are governed by them. Um, but he may also be seeing some real decline there. Yeah. Um, so I think your your devil's advocate argument of is Muzzin actually as bad as we have kind of described him as this year is a valid one. And my counter to that is essentially you look at all his... It's not that Muzzin has become an awful player immediately. It's that he has descended to like essentially league average. When previously he was arguably a first pairing defender, he was one of the best defenders in the league in terms of driving play um, at, at even strength. Right, uh, his so here's Muzzin's uh, relative courses over the last uh, five years. So I'm splitting up his time in LA and or sorry, last four years, splitting up his time in, in LA and Toronto was about five and a half um, in terms of shot differential per sixty in his last partial season in LA. Five in Toronto next year in 1920. Four next year in 2021. Three this year negative five. Huge, mm-hmm. huge, huge drop. Mm-hmm. Right? You look at his XG, really similar pattern. Uh, if you want to go fancier and look at his RAPM, which obviously tries to adjust for teammates and usage and all that sort of thing, he's been really consistently strong at driving play. And then this year, essentially league average. Mm-hmm. So that, in combination with the... So e- even if Mustin was perform, even if Mustin was not getting on the bad side of PDO, his numbers would be not ideal for the Leafs because last year, Muzzin Hall, uh, as, as a pairing, was actually like really strong, surprisingly strong. They had a 55% expected goals, um, 52% Corsi, 58% goals. Right? This year, with the Leafs, remember, as a better team at driving play generally, mm-hmm. they are, they've taken a step back. Right, certainly in goals, but even in expected goals, they're they're at fifty three. That's not a huge step back. But then you look at something like RAPM, and it's saying that it, that's accounting for the fact that they play now with a better version of Austin Matthews, with a better version of, of William Nylander, of, of of a strong a third line, and David Kahn, like all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I think it paints a reasonably convincing picture that Jake Muzzin isn't the Jake Muzzin of a year ago or two years ago, and you know, decline happens slowly and then very, very quickly sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Um, Muzzin is at the age where we can expect some decline. And at this point, I'm like relatively convinced we're seeing it. I would really love to be wrong on that. And again, it doesn't mean he is a bad player, just that he is worse than he was a year or two years ago. Mm-hmm. And his contract goes from being kind of a ridiculous steal to something where, um, I mean, by uh, the athletic, it's essentially exactly market value now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's worth remembering, he is about to turn 33. 
uh, in a couple of weeks. That's that's kind of old for a hockey player. Now, the contract is a declining one in terms of the actual money paid out. Um, once the signing bonus is paid, which is usually on July 1st, although not always, I've learned, um, on the last year of the deal, only $2 million would be owing at the end. And so I think the Leafs consciously left themselves the possibility of dealing out of the last year of this contract. But I think they were hoping that this deal would stay good for the first two or three years, basically. That they would get two quite good years of Jake Muzzin, maybe a third one where he starts to show decline, and then you can bail out of the fourth one if you really have to. We're still in the second year of it, and we're sort of seeing this, and it is a bit concerning. Now, that said, with the position the Leafs are in, and the choices the Leafs are now making in terms of the trade deadline, he's kind of who they got. They're going to play Jake Muzzin. And that's just how it is. They might play him with someone else. They might acquire a partner for him. But I think that he's going to be relied on as a top four guy, um, if healthy. And again, you know, he wasn't healthy during the playoffs either of the last couple of years. He took injuries that caused him to miss the end of each of those series. Um, it's just unfortunate because the Leafs' defense was kind of a sneaky strength the last two seasons, um, to a greater extent than I think was recognized maybe outside of Toronto. You know, the stereotype of the Toronto Maple Leafs was still they were run and gun, and, and you know, maybe there was truth in that, but they got to uh, defensive competence. And if Muzzin and Hall can't be relied on to do the heavy lifting surprisingly well, that is uh, a bit of an issue and when they got to address I do think some of this is PDO, and some of it is mistakes that are burned into my brain a little bit. But yeah, as you say, there is a picture of decline there, and it's unfortunate. Um, I yeah, gave him, exactly. Yeah, sorry. I gave him a B- minus uh, on the basis of I think he is getting unlucky, but he, he hasn't met expectations. Yeah, I, I gave him... A C plus, basically for the same reason. We're our, our grade, my grade is a linear map of your grade to like one <laughs> stage lower, effectively. Um, yes, we, we've we've kind of alluded to this a couple of times, but um, uh, to Keith kind of losing some faith in him in defensive minutes. Uh, but it's worth making that like slightly more explicit. M- Muzzin now is used. He's only the third most used Leafs defenseman in like def- these defensively important situations. So these are situations where a goal against hurts you a lot more than a goal four helps you. So, you know, if you're up 2-1 uh, in the third, an additional goal doesn't change your win probability that much, but a goal against changes your win probability by a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Right? So those types of situations. Um, and then in terms of zone, he still does get fairly defensive usage. Probably the mo- him and Muzzin still get the, or sorry, him and Hall, rather, still get the most defensive usage um, on the team in terms of zones. But, uh, you know, his, his minutes have you know, come down a little bit. It paints the picture of, of Keith seeing him fish the puck out of the net a bit too often and reacting a little bit to that. Mm-hmm. You know, Keith has given quotes saying, you know, we got to get him right again. And I'm hoping that uh, the little break here for the All-Star break and then some games off is going to give him some time to, you know, stabilize recovery from any nagging injuries he might have. And then hopefully in better shape for the, the stretch run. Unfortunately, the Leafs have a pretty intense run right to the playoffs from here on out. Uh, it's like three or four games a week, basically the whole way, starting tomorrow night. So definitely if if the miles are racking up on Muzzin at this point, that's not going to help. 
So let's hope for the best there. Um, Justin Hall, much maligned. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. I, well, I I think this year it's it, like I don't know. It's just uh, J- Justin Hall was always you know the <laughs> the guy who we were pretty confident was getting carried by Jake Muzzin. Mm-hmm. And then when Muzzin like you know slips a little bit, it becomes more apparent. Um, so yeah. uh, I'll just quickly write off, mm-hmm. r- recite off his, his stats. 33 games played, so he, he was scratched for a little bit and has also missed some time due to injury. One goal, one primary assist, four secondary assists. Not that much point production, as you can tell. Um, he takes more penalties than any other top four defender on the Leafs. It's not like he takes a billion of them, but y- it suggests maybe having a little bit of trouble keeping up with the play at times. His numbers uh, are generally quite strong, so... 55% goals for percentage, 55% XG, 52.5% Corsi. Um, these are primarily driven by... Th- so the reason that these are generally higher than, than the respective numbers for um, Muslin is that they're driven by some Hall-Sandine minutes. And these are actually quite recent, uh, where Sandine was kind of essentially promoted into the top four. And they have just kind of wrecked shit. Mm-hmm. Now... A couple of these games are against, like, it's been so few games that you actually have to consider quality of competition, not in the case of who are they playing on other teams, but what other teams are they playing? In this case, it was the, the Devils. Yeah, the, and the Devils, like, the Devil, they kind of died towards the end of the first game, and the second game, they straight up did not show up. Like, hmm. it was Jack Hughes and a lot of people who did not really care what happened. I, so this was, I, I went to that game in Newark, mm-hmm. and... Man, I felt bad for the Jersey fans. They were there were these hardcore fans sitting next to us, mm-hmm. and they went through the five stages of grief within this hockey game. Because <laughs> like the you know the first first uh, few shifts, like, okay, it's fine, we'll, we'll get it going, and then they just started getting really angry, and then you know it just got wor- to the point where in the second and, and third periods they were just kind of catatonic. Yeah, I mean that was that was an absolute annihilation by the Leafs. Uh, th- that is a that is the type of game that gets coaches fired. Like it didn't yeah. in this case, but like you you know, you, you those those are what a lot of those games look like. Well, yeah, and I we, mean, we remember the one that effectively got Babcock fired against Pittsburgh, even though we lasted yes. one more six nothing to Pittsburgh. I think it was. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. So well, six nothing to Pittsburgh, and I'm pretty sure Malkin wasn't playing. Yeah, and yeah, we were, now we were playing. Uh, it was Casimir Kaskisuo, wasn't it? And, uh, it might have been. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we called him up. He got destroyed behind a team that did not care. And I was like, man, that is a a brutal way to get introduced to the NHL. Even though, you know, he wasn't really ever going to probably do a whole lot. But still. Um, anyway, too bad for the Devils. Um, and it does, you know, give me a little bit of skepticism about Sandin's numbers, which we'll talk about. But I yeah. think, just to be clear here... Um, Justin Hall is an NHL defenseman. Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, uh, and like a uh, decent one. I think I always thought he was a five. Um, and I thought he was a five being carried by probably a number two cal- caliber defenseman in Jake Muzzin. Muzzin slips back a bit. Hall slips back to his reality. But he can play on a third pair and be completely fine. And that's not saying a whole lot. And you can say, I can get that cheaper than two million. But I, I don't think that we're at the point of having to throw him out. Um, the way that some people do, because they're just so frustrated with him at this point, he's fine. It's just, 
if he can be replaced by someone better, that's something I think you certainly look at. But there's also a chance that Muzzin Hall will rebound a bit. They'll be better in goals probably than they have been heretofore. Um, and, and if so, maybe the Leafs look a little bit better. Um, that's the biggest thing I'm saying is, okay, yes, Justin Hall is being exposed for what he always has been, but let's not overcorrect and say he's total junk now. Um, he's just not quite the best shutdown defenseman in Canada. Yes. Uh, a line that will live forever in our hearts. Mm. Uh, Muzzin Hall together as covered, uh, 44% goals for, 53% XG, 50% Corsi. So again, not bad considering they are playing top four minutes. Not phenomenal either. It's not, you know, that, that pairing went from like a strength last year to like basically a neutral now. Mm-hmm. Um, Hall has is, is been a slight positive in all in terms of his RAPM. That's probably due uh, in part to his strong performance uh, away from Muzzin with, with Sandine. So as covered, he is kind of trusted in these defensively important minutes, kind of through lack of other options, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, there are, there have been some some shifts with Hall Brody together, but if you want to, if you're going to rotate them to have them both on their on their right side, then yeah, like you know, Hall by definition basically is going to have to play some of these, but you know, he deserves credit for like not tripping and dying in these. Mm-hmm. Um, again, top four competition, not crazy hard. Slightly more defensive usage than Riley and Brody, as as was the case with Muzzin, um, which you would expect, and I gave him a B-. minus. Yeah, I gave him a B for being Justin Hall. Mm. He is still Justin Hall. Let us not lose sight of that. Yes. Um, okay, so Rasmus Sandin is yes, going to be now, a little tricky to evaluate. Yeah, now we're in the fun part of, <laughs> do these third-pairing results mean something? Yes, it's a game that we all love to play, and we've all played many times, sometimes with embarrassing results with hindsight, maybe in my case. Featuring previous contestants of (laughs) Connor Carrick, Igor Ojeganov, Roman Uh, Polak. Colin Miller, yeah. Um, You know, I was talking to uh, to Alan, uh, occasional guest star and uh, former editor of Raw Charge, and we were talking about these... These third pair guys, and I'm not saying Sandin is in this category, but he was thinking of Colin Miller. Guys who put up good numbers, but who feel a little bit like time bombs defensively. Where it's like, you know there are weaknesses there. And at some point, they're going to blow up on you. And coaches are conscious of that. And so coaches are accused of not trusting these players enough. And you can sort of tell that the coaches are thinking, sooner or later, he is going to embarrass me. He is going to do what Damon Severson did on that show. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's something that I keep in mind when evaluating these third pair defensemen. Like, is this guy a time bomb? Is he just beating up on soft competition? Or what is he doing? Rasmus Sandin is killing it, statistically. Yeah, like, just absolutely bonkers. Um, <laughs> uh, bonkers results. So... Uh, I'll give the point production first since we gave it for everyone else. He has a single goal, which he got quite recently. Mm-hmm. Five primary assists, four secondary assists. Basically, second pairing level point production when you look at it on a per minute basis. Um, he never takes penalties, which is kind of good to see. It remains to be seen. This is this might be a competition-based thing. It's harder to, pay, to take penalties when, you know, for example, you're just going to skate faster than these third and fourth line plugs. And it's not like Sandin's a brilliant skater or anything, but, you know, that that's not exposed or tested as much. Uh, lower and lower on in the lineup his 
on ice numbers, 58% goals for 62, 61%, sorry, expected goals percentage and 56% Corsi demolishes his usage completely. Mm. Um, there's been poor shooting at both ends of um, the ice when he's on. Nothing alarming there, just kind of descriptive. And yeah, I mean, Sandine Hall have been very good when played effectively as a second pair. 59% expected goals, 54% Corsi, 87% goals, which seems incredibly sustainable. <laughs> yeah, so Bobby Orr, look to your laurels because we got Rasmus Sandine coming for you. 87% is sustainable. Yes. Um, so as you would expect with these numbers, uh, Sandine's RAPM, his isolated impacts, are ridiculously good. Uh, like literally Austin Matthews level good this year, mm -hmm. right? Now it's way less impressive because he's doing this against the repairing guys for the most part, <laughs> yeah. but it's it's worth noting. And this is it's driven by kind of a pretty ludicrous offensive impact, which actually does kind of track with what we see of him. Um, but again, his usage is basically always third pair, uh, except for like the recent cameo with Hall in the second pair. He's, he's getting a bit more trusted as the year progresses, and he's, I think, clearly like the fifth defenseman now. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not like he's really being used in defensively important minutes at all. And he does spend a relatively larger proportion of his time with the fourth line and Jason Spezza than you would expect. And we know that fourth line is kind of carefully managed. And it, it, I wonder if there's some, that same sort of careful management that is happening with Sandine as well. Mm -hmm. The question with all three of these upcoming defensemen, um, and many before and many in the future, is will they make the leap? Will they make the move from third-pair defense, which they can obviously do well, to being relied on to do important minutes? And we've seen that happen or fail to happen often enough to know that that's a big step. That's not easy to do, and not everyone succeeds in doing it, despite gaudy stats. That said, Rasmus Sandin is doing pretty much everything possible statistically in the third-pair minutes. He can only play when the coach tells him to play, and he's doing everything he possibly can i will say and this might be me being optimistic a little bit i think he's gonna do it i think he's going to be at least a good second pairing defenseman at his peak um i'm really impressed with his judgment the, the knocks on him are always he's not a terrific skater and he's not especially big and so those are sometimes considered drawbacks for defensemen obviously but he's still uh, 21 years old. He's going to turn 22 next month. And he's already looking very, very strong in these minutes. He also seems to have a good head for the game. Um, I like his passing. Good puck-moving defenseman. He's just good at a lot of things. So I am going to say, yes, I think that Sandine does it. I'm more optimistic about him doing it than pretty much anybody. I agree. Um, now... I think some listeners would think, okay, how is this different from how we talked about Travis Dermott in his rookie year? Mm -hmm. And I would say, I guess, I mean, it isn't severely different. Um, mm -hmm. It's worth noting that Sandine has... So th these results are better than Dermott's rookie years, mm -hmm. right? Um, Dermott also really didn't sustain that to the same degree uh, in... in subsequent seasons mm -hmm. and that's going to be i guess the the true test with with sandy too but i mean there, there's definitely a world where he he drops off sure uh mm -hmm. so i, I mean i i think it's just 
it, it could just be, you know, pure, pure hope and, you know, fancy on our part. But I, I do kind of agree that I feel that Sandine will be able to elevate to the higher end of the lineup in part because I, I think this is a very eye-testy result or eye-testy, um, you know, statement, but Dermot's, like, frenetic, chaotic energy seemed to really help him on um, the third pair. And then for whatever reason, maybe in, in, in owing to that or for other reasons, it's, uh, against tougher competition, it can sometimes work against him. He feels jumpy. Mm-hmm. Sandine does seem to play with a lot more of a sense of calm. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that would, you know, persist when, when being more elevated. I don't think it's going to be completely painless. Like, I don't think it'll be a completely smooth transition when Sandine tries to go to the top four. He's going to look stupid on some occasions. Yeah, um, that's just life, right? It, but, yeah, yeah I, I, his numbers are so strong uh, at, this, at the level that he's currently at that I feel like there's, there's a reasonably good chance that he will, he will get there. Yeah. I, I gave him an A+, because I don't see what more I could have asked him to do in the opportunities he's been given. I mean, I guess you can say he had some iffy moments on an earlier uh, incarnation of the second pair, but he and Hall, in early going as a second pairing themselves, have worked really well. And now I don't put much stock in it, but he's done what he could have done with those minutes. So, yeah, I I don't think that I have any complaints with him. I just, I want to see him make make the leap, as it were. And it will be a little bit difficult as long as Dick Muzzin is there. Because Morgan Riley is a fixture on this team for a long time to come. And then Muzzin takes the second left defenseman slot. So, still, mm-hmm. we'll see. They can do kind of a thing similar to Tampa, where their three most played defensemen are all on separate pairings and all play, like, somewhat meaningful minutes. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something to look at going forward is if you can give a little bit of the work um, to each of the, the three pairings, you might find something that you're happy with. It's a little trickier and it's, it's more active, but yeah. Now if Sandine has been the big winner in terms of, and especially in the eyes of the coaching staff, you know, it seems that Sandine is quite trusted. The big loser has been Travis Dermott. And it's not that he's done anything bad per se. His numbers are actually still quite strong. Uh, 31 games played, one goal, two primary assists, one secondary assist, nothing major there. He's not an offensive uh, dynamo. And, you know, for all the talk of his offensive abilities and, and his ability to, like, carry the puck out of the zone, um, he, I don't think he's a great in-zone offensive defenseman. I think his transition ability with his feet is really good. I don't think he's only an okay passer, and it doesn't have, you know, particularly high-end skill or offensive instincts once in the offensive zone. Um, he does take a lot of penalties for a third-pairing guy. Kind of uh, it makes sense with when you, you see him play. He gets really up into someone's, into someone's sweater, mm-hmm. right? He plays really aggressively, which is a good thing in many cases, especially on the third pair. Um, but, you know, that does hurt a, a bit at the margin, and he just really doesn't get that involved in the offense. Mm-hmm. But his numbers are quite good. Yes, they are. Um, you know, 55% of the goals, 56% of the expected, and 53.5% of the Corsi. That's that's totally fine. And even if you think um, he's been illuminated by the glow of Rasmus Sandin, and I think Sandin is the stronger party, um, still, good stuff uh, on his part. He can certainly be an NHL defenseman. 
of some description. That's long been established. Nothing that's happened this year has really thrown that bar into question. Um, that said, and I'll do a little bit of a hint here, I was harsh on this grade. And I'm no, I was not really that harsh on any of the other defensemen. He's a slight negative in all three uh, respects by RAPM. Um, he's basically, the, yeah. Sorry, the, the reason for that is that effectively his minutes with Riley didn't go particularly well, whereas Sandine's minutes away from him did go quite well. Yeah, Sandine has done his job on the third pairing well with anybody. Pretty well. Like, it, mm-hmm. it does not matter who you put him with, he will make it work. Um, Dermot, when he got a harder job, struggled. And you can say that's that's a much more difficult thing to be asked. That's true. But Travis Dermott at this point is 25. Um, we have been waiting on him to show more than that for a very long time. And it, it doesn't mean that he's bad or awful. It doesn't mean that he's morally at fault or anything. But at this point, I think he has failed the test. He has not made the leap. And maybe he'll do it in another market. But I don't see it happening here. Right. It's, I, I'm quite confident Dermot's going to have a, a long and relatively prosperous career. In the sense, like, I don't think he's going to wash it at the NHL anytime soon. Mm-hmm. He's comfortably a third-pairing guy. You can put him on your third pair and be happy with it. He's like a luxury third-pair uh, defenseman. But he, he has lost the trust of the coaching staff to be the next man up in case of injuries, it seems. Mm-hmm. Right? It says something that... Um, Rather than put Dermot on the left and go Dermot Hall, they put Sandine on the left and go, uh, you know, Sandine Hall and like have Dermot Lilligren effectively. Yeah. Right? So, like, it's, you know, I, I don't want to over, like, I don't want to be too negative on, on Dermot because he's also, he's moved to the right side mm-hmm. for a large chunk of this year and done it well, which is, which is good. And that's something that will benefit his career tremendously if he, if he can point to saying, hey, I can be a third-pairing guy and fill in on either side. Like, that increases his value. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just think it's, it's not overwhelmingly likely that he becomes a, a true second-pairing guy. Maybe he becomes a guy who can play in those situations and spot minutes and things like that. But um, the coaching staff doesn't seem to really trust him to take his, his play on the third pair and, and you know, map it to, to playing against better players more consistently and you know we, we competition is still a controversial topic in, in hockey analytics in the sense of you know are, are we overrating how much it matters but I, th- I think I think it does matter in the context of um, or it, it, do, it does matter when you're looking at like such a control such a difference between the bottom pair and like kind of standard top four usage Right. I don't think there's a huge difference between the minutes Muzzin plays and the minutes Riley plays. But I, I do think there's a fairly notable difference in the minutes that Dermot plays and the minutes that, that you know, any of the top four play. It's not as if he never ever plays against good players. It's just he plays against them relatively less, so he's relatively less exposed. Yeah, and like I'll own, my attitude on this is a product of being burned before. Of me believing in defensemen, making the leap, and not having had that work out. And maybe I'm overcorrecting. It's very possible. But I just don't see 
um, the kind of progress from Dermot that I would be hoping for. Um, you know, he's been pro- totally fine this year. He's had some good years in the past. Um, but I've lost any hope of seeing him do more in a Leaf uniform than he's already done. And I think, by the way, if you put him on waivers, I think he would clear. That's not... Because of the contract? Yeah. He, you know, he makes $1.645 million And it's, you know, that's a lot for a third pair defenseman. Maybe not. You know, I'm not saying that with total confidence. But it, it is a bit, you know... Grim, sorry, it's it's 1.5 for Dermot. Uh, I stand corrected on that. But still, I think he would clear waivers just because he's being paid a bit richly for what he brings, which is a decent third-pair guy. So, yeah, I, I was a bit harsh on this, and I said I'm giving him a C plus because I had hope at one point that he might make the leap, that he might show it, and it's not happening. And I've lost confidence it's going to happen. I gave him a, a B minus, and I mean, I don't know. I, I, I do worry that I am over-centralizing too much on the difference between a bottom pair guy and a low-end top four guy. Like, I, I mean, I, is there a world where Travis Dermott basically plays the Justin Hall role to a better top, actual top four guy? Yes, absolutely. He, he probably could do that on, on a handful of teams, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just hasn't shown it yet. It doesn't seem like the stars are aligning for him to do it here. And yeah, it, it's just... He, he's being penalized in my grade as well for not for, for kind of the, the consistent year on the, the lack of year on year growth to the point where he's excelled beyond what we knew he could do, you know, two years ago. So I give him a B minus. Yeah, this is absolutely expectations based. And you can see, look, if Sandine is in this spot four years from now, I will not be giving him an A plus. Um, I will hold him to account for those rising expectations. And I think you can also say, hey, Travis Dermott is in a bit of a tough boat because he doesn't shoot right. But unfortunately, he's going to keep shooting left going forward. So if you're assessing his value, that matters. Yep. And, you know, the ratio of left to right defensemen in the NHL, I don't think has shown much sign of changing. So, Mm -hmm. sorry, Travis. Nothing personal. Uh, All right. Last one uh, for the defenseman, Timothy Liljegren. Yeah, uh, 27 games played, one goal, one primary assist, four secondaries. So second pairing point production. Uh, you have him down here as more of a gunner than people realize, and I yeah, was he, among the non-realizers. Yeah, he, he takes, he takes a, a decent amount of shots. Again, no, no Leaf is really that much of a gunner. This is all relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it would surprise me a bit when looking at the stats that, that Lilligren tends to take a, a fair few shots. Um, like Sandine, he doesn't take penalties, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, results, I mean, all really strong. Uh, mid to high 50s in all of goals for expected goals and Corsi. Again, this is third pairing usage, either with Dermot or with Sandine. Has not looked awesome with Muslin. There were definitely some times, uh, we covered the results earlier, where they got kind of killed in goals and looked, um, or sorry, they, they, they did well in goals, but got kind of killed in shots. And I kind of remember eye testing um, Lo Yuran is like, uh, not totally sure he's up to this yet. Mm-hmm. He's, he's young. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, he's probably going to end up with a higher grade than, than Dermot, but I don't necessarily think he's like a much better player or even a better player at all necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's a very good chance that in three years, we're just having the same discussion with Lo Yuran. Like, yeah, he's a third pairing guy. 
Yeah, I mean, I talk about these three players in the context of the leap. The leap that you're going to make to second pairing minutes. And Sandy, I'm saying, I think he's going to make it. Dermot, I'm saying, he hasn't made it. And I don't think it's going to happen. Ilya Grin, I'm saying, uh... The uncertainty <laughs> helps him. Yes. And he is 22. He'll turn 23 at the end of the season. But, yeah, I, I'm unsure. Let's put it that way. I have less faith than I do in Sandine. But I will say, I did not think he was going to make the team this year. Uh, which is to his credit, for, for mm-hmm. a couple of reasons. Um, not necessarily based on his talent. But I looked at the roster, I said, okay, Riley, Brody, Muzzin, Hall, Sandine, Dermot. And then you have your six. And then for your seventh, um, you might want, say, Alex Biega or something, who is not impressed and has not played enough minutes to be evaluated here. But Liljegren is still waivers exempt, so he could go down. And so I did the math on that. And I said, he's going to spend another year in the AHL. And he outperformed a little bit. So he's certainly getting some credit in my grade for having beat low expectations, whereas Dermot is getting dinged for having failed to meet high ones. Do I think that he's going to be more than a sixth defenseman in general? I'm certainly not ruling it out. Um... I don't love his north-south skating. And no, he's, sometimes he's not I see it that as, fast. Yeah. It's interesting because he's agile. He can move laterally pretty well to the point where I would consider it a strength. But every now and then you'll see him get burned and he'll be turning around and watching the play go past him. And that's a little worrisome to me. It also is, this is partly why it was surprising to me that he was a gunner. He has not really scored very much pretty much since he's played with adults Mm -hmm. you know he he had five goals in 40 games one year with the marlies at his peak but he's probably not going to be any kind of goal scoring defenseman he certainly shouldn't be expected to get power play minutes and so that's fine we just talked about how we love tj brody who does not score either very much but i do wonder why he's shooting so often uh if his shots go in at such a low rate well, I, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate that. Like, yeah. he, he, he shoots... I mean, I think a lot of it is mm-hmm. he shoots in situations where he doesn't feel he has a better play on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some players... If you, if you tend to lack burst and separation, and also if you're not, like, an amazing... If you don't have amazing offensive instincts, you will have... You'll be able to create fewer passing lanes for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, shooting becomes a more, relatively more appealing option. Yeah, where Sandin, I think, can spot paths opening up for him. And he has the uh, sang froid to be patient. Um, You know, he can endure a little bit of pressure waiting for him. And, you know, he doesn't wait too long and he doesn't panic. He lets it come to him a little bit. Liljegren, by the way, is not a bad playmaking defenseman either. I I don't want to ding him for that. I'd say his passing is, his stretch passing in particular is is very good. Yes, and, you know, it's, it's hard not to wonder as an aside whether he might have gotten up a little faster under Mike Babcock, just mm-hmm. because that, that was a bit more of a thing, but who knows. Um, he's done more than I thought he was going to do this season, and so he's a little positive. He hasn't radically changed my opinion of his overall career arc. Right now I'm seeing a guy who's going to be a decent third-pair guy, um, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. 
but I'd like to see a little bit more to be convinced he's going to go farther. Still, I do have to reward him for taking a job out of camp because I said this is the kind of thing he has to do, and he did it. Yeah, I gave him a B plus. I'm worried his physical limitations will kind of prevent him from ever really getting to a top four level. But like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it, again this is relative to expectations. He's surpassed the expectations this year, where he's established that hey, he can probably be an NHL player, and that's something. Um, with I mean, I remember when he was playing with Muzzin, we, know, we noted explicitly like, there were some times where both of them got burned, and it's like you maybe want someone with a bit more recovery speed playing with Muzzin. Mm-hmm. Um, not that Hall is much of a burner either, but... Yeah. They did try a couple of games where the Sandy and Liljegren pair was given basically just the responsibilities of a second pairing, and it didn't go super great. It did not. Um, against the Rangers, most prominently. Yeah. Um, so, you know... Uh, I give him okay. a B-plus as well. Yes. Okay, cool. So we can probably move on to goaltenders. Uh, this will be relatively quick. Jack Campbell, 31 games played, 21 wins, 2.30 goals against, 925 save percentage, um, a 666 goal saved above expectation, uh, with the Leafs giving up 2.43 expected goals against per 60. So that's like a league average defense that the Leafs play, basically, when he's on the ice, and he has saved between six and seven goals more than an average uh, NHL goaltender would have this past season. There isn't so much to discuss here um, because it's just kind of the numbers and how we've seen him play. And yeah, yeah, I think you got to give him an A. Yeah, uh, I did too. I gave him an A. Uh, he was in A plus territory a month ago, and he's had a bit of a, a scuffle since. He um, he does seem a little bit wild in the net, and this is mm-hmm. way into eye test territory with goalies, which is like one notch above useless coming from me so take this for what it's worth um he seems to me like a very physical reactive goaltender where it's like he will move heaven and earth to get in front of the puck and he'll make great desperation saves that's not necessarily a knock i mean dominic hasek would sometimes do crazy stuff and he was probably the greatest goaltender in history but yeah sometimes campbell i'm a little bit like whoa buddy um you seem a bit wild there now that said uh, all of his numbers, including the ones about, you know, rebound control and stuff like that, look great this year. Um, and then have declined a bit since. Uh, look great through the first half of the year. Um, so, you know, take my eye test for what it's worth. At this point, he's our starter. And so we just have to, to hope for the best there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Peter Morazic, I mostly want to be like, don't overreact to four games. Because I saw so many people who kind of lost their minds in terms of Mrazek having four injury-plagued starts and being really bad. Um, and it's like, that's four games for a guy who's played over 200 in his career and been pretty good. Uh, and, you know, since then, he's rebounded a bit and looked more like he could be the 1B we've been hoping for. Um, he's dragged his numbers in the right direction. The numbers are not great, though. No, um, seven games played, five wins. So, I mean, that's nice, but 2.9 for GAA, 902 save percentage, negative 1.51 goal saved above expectation. The Leafs play slightly worse defense when he's on the ice. Could just be randomness, could be maybe puck handling. I don't know, but probably just randomness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that he's better than it might have felt like when we were watching him show up once a month and get shelled. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, we're hoping for more than that. I don't see him taking the starting job from Jack Campbell unless things go desperately wrong, which mm-hmm. is something that I thought was maybe a possibility in the offseason. So I, I guess we'll see. But every um, every step 
up that he takes in terms of recovering, improving his numbers, looking more viable is an improvement in the price we might have to pay to get rid of his contract in the offseason if we decide we want to do that. You know, if we want to extend Jack Campbell to a bigger number, you might have to cut the fat out of the roster somewhere and Mrazic's contract might be one. Or yeah. if Campbell scuffles a bit, maybe you just go back. But uh, we'll see. Coaching. Yeah, I gave him a C. Yeah, I gave him a C plus. Yeah, coaching, um, I mean, <laughs> this is where we get into, like, the nihilism of, like, nothing we do now matters. Yep. And it's, un- I mean, it's unfair to blame, it's unfair in some ways to blame players for a seven-game sample. It's even more insane to blame coaches, but we're going to do it. Unfortunately, that's the business. And you are more disposable as a coach than any star player. That's just how the game works, unfortunately. And I think Sheldon Keefe is aware that he's a little bit under the gun right now. Um, mm-hmm. Now, less than he might have been because he has an extension in hand. But, yeah, I, I think, look, the team is operating at a, at a high level. They're, the special teams look good. The five-on-five numbers look good. He's, um, he was apparently keen on David Kampf and has used him in the role that he clearly had in mind. And that's worked out. So I have to give him credit for that, especially you know, all the more so because it's not something that I thought was going to work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, with the caveat that this is like 10% of his final grade and the playoffs are 90%, I gave him an A. Yeah, I, I think I, I gave an A as well. The power play being fixed has been very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people are going to, no matter what, the playoffs are going to matter because like, if... if the Leafs fail to win, there will be some decrying of the Leafs coaching staff, no matter what they did, is not making the proper adjustments, where the proper adjustments are defined as the adjustments that would have made us win. Mm-hmm. Which is unfair, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's pro sports. It's an unfair world. Yeah, it's, it's the old thing, you know, analogies between sports and war, but with generals, you can say there are all these reasons why you lost, but the standard in the profession is winning or losing. And if you lose battles, you get turfed. Um... Kind of applies to coaches after a while. So, so for the best. Okay, I think that's all I had. Yes, um, I don't have anything else to discuss either. We, were there any bad takes? I mean, I feel like we, we could have spent, we could spend more time talking about that Damon Severson play. It was oh. <laughs> truly special. Oh my God. It's just, okay. I do not want to be mean about it, but it is so fascinating to me how poorly played it was because he doesn't shoulder check in a timely fashion to figure out where the guy behind him is playing he applies no pressure to kerfoot so kerfoot basically can just take his time and do whatever he wants um whereas mikhaev is also kind of not obstructed so like severson has to go farther before turning if that's what he wants to do or at least stay on the passer even if he had given kerfoot free reign to come to the net and said sorry shots the goalie's problem he would have been so much more useful than what he did um, also, I heard some people saying like, oh, he was obviously gassed. And I'm like, yeah, he was playing the point at the start of a power play. Like, I'm sure it's tiring, but as NHL hockey goes, that is not the most that is asked of you in terms of mm. physical exertion. Yeah, so. not even close. Uh, this, this play, I've never seen my Twitter timeline erupt over <laughs> one particular play in like a regular season game as much. Yeah. Because everyone's like, what is go? What just happened? 
<laughs> I, I, I saw, I forget who it was. Someone tweeted where it's like, they watched that, um, uh, they watched that Netflix documentary about like corruption and, and like point shaving in sports and then saw that Severson playing. We're like, huh. Yeah. It was Interesting. Justin Bourne. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I, I'm sure he's being very tongue in cheek there, but it's like, it was a bad play. It was gruesome. Um, and, and you know, it was, uh, especially given some heat because, uh, actually Hardev on our site was one of the people who mentioned Damon Severson as a potential candidate, Kevin Papetti. Um, I found their arguments persuasive for the record. Well, I also he, said he, he looks like he looks like a good player in general. Yeah. Um, but you know, seeing the Devils fans on my timeline talking about it, they said this is the Damien Severson experience. Is that he'll be a good defenseman most of the time, and every now and then he will make you tear your hair out. And it sounded a lot like Jake Gardner vibes. Uh and to be clear, I love Jake Gardner. I would take back prime Jake Gardner in a heartbeat. But in Severson's case, I was like, wow, that was as bad a play as I've seen in some time. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was a, a pretty glaring <laughs> thing to have happen in the course of two dreadfully played games with the Devils. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, just a horrific, horrific play. I cannot express enough how bad a play that was, but... Um, yeah, I think that's just about it for what we wanted to cover this week, is it not? Yeah, that's all I got. All right, great. So, I mean, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionmanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.